Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. We are continuing on our subject of wrongful convictions. We have another terrible story, really heartbreaking one today. I say that almost every time because they're all heartbreaking. Uh, Timothy Cole was convicted of a rape he did not commit. He was sentenced to 25 years. He died while in prison from an asthma attack, which is relevant to me and which we'll get into with his brother, Corey Session, who is the vice president of the Innocence Project of Texas. We've talked lots about Innocence Projects. We're going to dive into the good work that they're doing in Texas, and I'm super excited to talk to him. So let's bring him on right now. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Corey Session, welcome to Open Mic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, listen, so happy to have you here. I hate it being under these circumstances, but I know you, this is your life's mission and talking about your brother and talking about Innocence Projects of, of Texas. You know, Corey, you've, you've worked tirelessly to help free the wrongfully convicted. And, and there's a very personal reason why you got involved. Can you set the stage for our listeners and viewers? My oldest brother, Tim, Timothy Cole, um, was a, began his college career at Texas Tech in 1978. He was going to be a walk-on student for the basketball team. Well, that didn't happen, but he still decided to go ahead and start his education at Texas Tech. He went two years, and then he called our parents one day and said, hey, meet me at DFW Airport. And they were like, why? He said, well, I joined the Army. And they were a little disappointed and shocked, as we all were. And his reasoning for joining the Army is because there were six other siblings behind him. And my sister Karen was just about to start college at SMU. And he thought he'd be able to save some money by getting on the GI Bill. Well, he did a stint in the Army for five years. After that, he completed it. He came home, worked for a year. And then he returned to Texas Tech. By that time, my sister Karen was in her first year of law school at Texas Tech, and my brother Reggie was a sophomore at Texas Tech. We were all supposed to go to Texas Tech. He returned for the spring semester in January of 1985, and he had been there maybe two months, and he was arrested. There had been a string of rapes going on since December of 84, and in the beginning of 85, he was arrested and labeled as the tech rapist. Um, and that's where the uh, American, he was on the road to the American dream, but that's where the American nightmare began. Um, so, so, I mean, this it's ended up being a high profile case, uh, you know, a white college student sexually assaulted by a you know, black man um, there were serial rapists in the areas you mentioned that had started before he even got to campus, which right. I think is relevant. Um, police were obviously under pressure to make an arrest. But why don't you talk to me about the the, you know, some of the basic issues that happen? I mean, my listeners and viewers are, are, are um, familiar with all the misconduct and, and with all the shenanigans that go on. But why don't you just take me through some of the highlights and some of the ones that you think really doomed your brother in this, you know, into getting a fair trial? Well, he had no criminal record. 
he actually had reported his wallet being stolen and weeks before. And the iron, the coincidence that happened that set this all up, the police do a undercover sting operation. Tech rapist had always approached all of his night around the campus on foot. Well, Tim had gotten a call from one of their roommates who worked at a Mr. Gaddis and he said, Tim, can you come pick me up? And he said, yeah. Tim got in his car, drove to the Mr. Gaddis Pizza, parked outside. That was a young lady walking there. Young lady looked at him. He looked at her. He went inside to pick up his roommate. His roommate came and said, hey, I'm going to get off a little bit later than what I thought. Can you come back? Tim said, yeah. So he went back outside to his car. That young lady walked back outside because she had been sitting in the restaurant as well. Looked at him. He and said, do you need a ride somewhere? And she said, no, I'm fine. He said, are you sure? And she said, yes. And so he pulled out his driver and he said, don't be afraid of me. My name is M. Cole. He said, oh, here's my Texas Tech ID. I go to school here. You sure you don't need a ride? She said, yeah. He drove off. That was during the daytime. That young lady turned out to be an undercover police officer. And she said, that's him to her supervisor. And the supervisor said, how do you know? She said, because he looks like a bitch. They didn't have a photo of Tim. Uh, he had never been arrested for anything. Well, they saw that a report had been done for someone having stolen his wallet. And they called him and said, hey, we think we know someone who may have witnessed your wallet being stolen. He's innocent. Tim doesn't know any better. They come out to his apartment and they take a picture of him, Polaroid picture of him downstairs outside of his apartment. Go back, they use that Polaroid picture with regular booking photos in a six pack. And he has shown that, that picture is shown to, to the rape victim. And the she didn't pick out Tim initially, <clears throat> but the detective there, and she vividly remembers this said, are you sure? And she said, I think that well, the detective wrote on six pack that's and it went on from there. Uh, his photo stood out. You would do that by any remote means today. Would you do a photo lineup like that at all? Uh, the rape victim reported in the incident, the rapist smoked heavily and she says she remembered that because he kept putting out cigarette butts. She knew I better save these cigarette butts because they might be important. Well, Tim couldn't smoke. He was a severe asthmatic and that was never told to the rape victim. Uh, when Tim was arrested, uh, the police came to the apartment and my brother Reggie heard them talking downstairs because the window was up. And uh, he heard, he vividly remembers Tim saying, no, I ain't raped nobody. Y'all got the wrong person. And he went down there with him and they call our parents. <clears throat> My mother said, well, just go talk to him. And, you know, we've done anything. Next thing you know, he was arrested. Uh, My mother flew to Lubbock that evening, bonded him out of jail and paying a lawyer. And they came back home that same night on the Delta Airlines. And by the time she got home, he received a phone call from Mike 
Brown, who was the attorney uh, that my parents had hired. And Mike Brown said, Miss Session, I'm just calling to see if you made it home safely. She said, yes, I did. And he said, well, that's good. She said, well, I have some bad news. And she said, oh, what's that, Mike? She said, well, there was another rape tonight. And she said, oh, Mike, I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, well, that's, he said, well, that's not just it. Bad news is they picked out Tim again. That could not have been so. He was not there. Um, year and a half goes by. Um, and I remember the bill was about $10,000 that my parents spent. And that was quite a bit of money <laughs> back then for a lawyer uh, back in 1985. A year and a half goes by. Uh, lawyer Mike Brown kept thinking that he was, he kept hearing through the courts, hey, you know, they're going to drop this case. It's not, he kept hearing that, well, lawyers, that never happened. Uh, but he knew that there was another suspect, which was never shown to uh, Michelle, the rape victim. As he, uh, the trial approached in September of 1986, he was offered a plea bargain the day before trial by the then district attorney, Jim Bob Darnell. He chose to try that case himself personally. And Tim said, no. Oh, you're facing 25 years in prison. And he said, well, I'd rather serve all 25 years in prison before I ever admit to something I did not do. Wow. How, what was the plea? Deal? How many, how many years were they going to give him if he pled guilty to something he didn't commit? He was going to be given two years probation. And he wasn't he, even going to go to prison. Yes, correct. And he turned it down. Holy shit. You know what? This oh was, my God. This was the, case of the cent of the century uh, for of the decade for Lubbock it was all of the newspapers mind you the other person uh, Jerry Wayne Johnson had been arrested three days after Tim had bonded out of jail for those other that's the person who who eventually confessed to this particular rape right so I'm giving away part of the story to our listeners and viewers but that happened the person who event, who did rape Michelle did come forward. And that was, first of all, never told to your family right away. Um, never told Michelle right away, I think. I mean, the, the story is convoluted a little bit. But the fact is, somebody did eventually con uh, confess. Correct. And when the trial happened, uh, Michelle took the witness stand again. And she was asked by Jim Bob Darnell, according to the transcripts, and she remembers this as well. She was asked, do you see the men in the courtroom that you said uh, raped you? And she said, well, I she leaned forward and she said, I said, I think that's him. And went on from that. In a paramount moment, we couldn't have asked for a better lawyer. Um, Mike Brown named a man by the name of Jerry Wayne Johnson as saying, this is the rapist. All the rapes happened the exact same way. They had the same modus operandi. And the judge, every time he brought up Jerry Wayne Johnson's name, the judge threatened to admonish him, hold him in contempt, Judge McClintock. The deck, the stacks, the, the deck was stacked against him, uh, Tim. 
he didn't want to acquiesce and, and plead so they could let this case go and they could go ahead and do the others. Well, he was subsequently convicted. And uh, on September 17th, ironically, it's Constitution Day. And he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And on sentencing uh, that night, uh, he was still out on bond uh, the day before sentencing. And my mother vividly remembers that uh, he cried in her arms at the hotel they were staying at, crying, saying, Mother, why did they do this to me? The next day was sentencing. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison. The judge asked him, Mr. Cole, what do you have? Do you have anything to say? And he said, I'm sorry that the young lady was raped, but I did not do this. And he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. While he was sentenced, I mean, after he had been sentenced, he was taken down to uh, the jail cell and sitting there crying. We know this part to be factually true because of records that we uncovered. And there was a man across from him in a cell who heard him crying saying, why did they do this? God, you know I didn't do this. And that man was Jerry Wayne Johnson. And later, later on, he would say he knew who Tim was because he had saw him in the newspapers and things like that. And he said at that time, he, he knew one day he was going to have to make this right. We believe that because Tim was sentenced in 1996. After all of his appeals were exhausted, because uh, I remember one appeal coming to the Court of Criminal Appeals, and by then I was working at the Texas State Capitol as a legislative aide because Tim told me to go work at the Capitol. <laughs> he said, you can make changes there. I'm like, okay, whatever. He still remained your big brother, even though he was in, in prison, sending you, telling you what classes to take in college, things like that. Well, in 1996, uh, when the statute of limitations had expired, Letters start coming to DA Jim Bob Darnell's office, the new DA who had replaced him, the former judge uh, in the case, Judge McClintock, of a man admitting his guilt. And that was from Jerry Wayne Johnson. But those letters were tossed to the side and just filed away. Luckily, we were able to uncover them. So we believe him when he said he knew one day he was going to have to make it right. Uh, 1996 is also the year our father passed away. And he told our mother, don't ever give up on Tim. And she said, I won't. Three years later, um, you know, December 1st, the phone rings. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> December actually found out a day after he had passed away uh, that he had died on December 2nd. On December 3rd, the phone rings and I was not at home, but my brother Kevin, I remember him calling me and there was a lot of screaming in the background. And it was my mother and Kevin said, 
come home, just come home. And I was like, what, what's going on? And he hung up. I, I called back and he said, man, and I said, what? He said, Tim died. So I went home and my wife, uh, we drove to my mom's house. And when I got there, the chaplain called. I happened to be there when the chaplain called back. And he said, Miss, Miss Session, will you be claiming his body? And she said, absolutely. And remember my brother telling me growing up and it, it hit home. He said, you know, the last will be first one day. And I didn't understand. And we needed to, to bury him and I called a friend of the family who ran one of the busiest funeral homes in the, in, in the country. And uh, he answered, I said, Dr. Spencer, uh, we need you to go to uh, pick up my brother, Tim. He's in, he was at died in prison. And I don't remember, it was probably two o'clock that afternoon and Somehow around 7.30, at probably 8.30 at night, <clears throat> phone rang again. And he said, Corey, I yes, he said, Gregory Spencer. I said, yes, sir. Tell Miss Session, I have Timothy's body and it's perfect. Dr. Spencer called, tell you Tim is here and his body is perfect. And he said, oh, she said, oh, thank the Lord, because he always feared he had, you know, would get beaten up. He'd been stabbed and would never tell her or something like that. And so, you know, at this time, uh, we're scary. There was no insurance money. There was nothing. Uh, and I remember the funeral back then was probably like $5,000. And I'd never borrowed a dime in my life. And something told me, I went to this place, whatever, that I need $25. And a lady, I filled out some form, she said, okay. And I had a check and I went to the funeral home. And I remember coming back and I said, well, I paid the balance. And she said, oh, thank you. I, did, I just didn't know. And I said, oh, it was done. And my son, Corey Jr., was two years old at that time. And he was about to turn three and we went to Dillard's and we bought him a dark blue brand new suit. And he still remembers, vividly remembers that, but uh, that we bought Uncle Tim a suit, the uncle he never met. And I remember the day of the funeral was walking she was fixing her hat and she stood there in the mirror and she said, well, 
like this. Today they know my son as a convicted rapist. And she said, but one day the world will know who he really is. And I had no idea. But I want to go back because the day he was convicted, I mean sentenced, and she came home. My parents came home from Lubbock that that uh, we all were at the house, everybody but Tim. And Mike, it was probably three o'clock in the morning. And there was just this loud screaming and nobody got up. And it was my mother walking back and forth, up and down the hallway, swinging her arms saying, God, you know he didn't do this. Why did, why did you let this happen? And I crossed the hallway and I woke up our dad and I said, wake up. And he said, huh, huh? I said, get mother. And he just went the hallway and he girded her and he walked around to the side of her bed and she was just panting in a low voice. He got back in the bed and I was standing at their doorway and her bedroom window faced the east and her hands were kind of tilted and the, the light from the moon was shining on her face. And I remember the tears coming down her face and I said, this is this isn't right. This can't be it. And you know, he went on to prison. She made numerous trips to visit him. You take a picture of of family or things like that, newborn children. He would you send them to him. He would write and mail them back. But he always said, you know, he wanted three things. He wanted to be vindicated exonerated and a full pardon. And when he passed away, uh, I remember at the funeral, uh, I asked Dr. Spencer, I said, did you save any tissue? I didn't know anything like that. And he said, when the time comes, you won't even need it. I didn't understand that either. And we buried him at the Mount Olivet Cemetery next to our father and uh, that's where he's buried today. Wow. So a lot of these cases turn on bad lawyering. Um, you didn't have that. Um, you had a, it sounds like you had a pretty bad judge. You had a pretty bad uh, prosecutor who was relentless. You know, the fact that the prosecutor offered no jail time for a rape that tells you right there what it tells you it's a terrible case and they can't win it. Well, somehow they won it. He had an alibi. Um, there was other suspects that the judge, you know, kept tamping down and wouldn't let him argue. Um, I, I, you know, it's shocking how this, how this jury, you know, came to the result they came to, um, you know, and, 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 you know, with, with, it, sound, it sure sounds like, I don't know if this is just before the DNA really started kicking in, but I know there was DNA back during the, this period of time, but, you know, there were cigarette butts with the perpetrator's DNA on it. She probably had, there was probably semen, there was probably pubic hairs, there was all that kind of stuff. 
that didn't couldn't have matched your brother um, matched somebody else. Um, so fingerprint that was recovered and the Lubbock Police Department admit they lost it. They say they lost it, but there was a fingerprint recovered. Yeah. Who, who believes that? Um, the fact that your brother, the, the fact that was it argued at trial that your brother never couldn't smoke cigarettes, never had a cigarette in his life? I, I not ac according to uh, he smoked, but he was an asthmatic is mentioned in uh, the trial transcripts by the uh, our lawyer at that time. It, it just I mean, none of it, none of it adds up with the good alibi witnesses he had. Uh, the fact, I mean, there's just so many, just these cases, there's just so many things that don't add up. And then there's a, and then there's this conviction and the appeals court do the wrong thing. And then after he dies, all this stuff starts flooding out. Now let's fast forward a little bit to, you know, the wonderful things that you and your family were able to pull off, um, that we, we will attach a video of the, the 11 minute video that you had created, um, showcasing your brother's life, showcasing all of the things that, all of the good changes that have come out um, of this in Texas, the beautiful 13 foot bronze statue in Lubbock that I thought was amazing. Um, but why don't you talk a little bit about some of the changes that has been seen and then go into what you have founded and what you are now working on, please. Sure. Um, the irony of my mom always said after she said, I always prayed a prayer, I prayed the prayer, Lord, whoever let them come forward. She said, I just never could have dreamed to come forward in a way that he did. So May, uh, Mother's Day weekend, 2007, letter comes in the mail. It's from inmate at the, in and rest of Tim. And it says, Mr. Cole, I've been trying to reach you. I'll do whatever it takes to prove your innocence. I, in fact, did commit the rapes that Lubbock wrongfully committed. I'll do whatever it takes. Here is my parents' address and phone number. You may call them if you need. Signed, Jerry Johnson, who was the original uh, person mentioned at trial back in 1986. He did not know Tim had died years, several years earlier uh, in prison. Uh, so we begin uh, Contact Innocence Project, which ironically was based in Lubbock, uh, a clinic, let me say that, at that time in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, and we move forward. We get a DNA testing done. The, the prosecutor at that time said he'll do whatever it takes to prove Tim Cole's guilt or innocence. Uh, six months uh, go by and we hear that they have found the rape kit and that there's more than enough uh, biological evidence to test. Well, we celebrated in January of 2008. And finally, in May of 2008, word leaked out uh, through an investigative reporter by the name of Mr. Blackburn, uh, Elliot Blackburn, who said, hey, I got some news and we were like, okay. And he said, it's some big news. And we we're like, okay. And he said, well, they got the DNA test back about three weeks ago and they've been sitting on it. And 
it shows that Jerry Wayne Johnson committed the rape. And my mother was like, okay. <laughs> it was not surprising to us. We, she knew. She we, knew. And so we went march forward and we attempt to clear his name in the state of Texas. No, well, and we come to find out subsequently that no person had ever been, had, had ever died in prison and to be factually proven innocent through DNA testing later uh, had never occurred. And so in Texas, there's a, a process to exonerate someone. Well, it had never been done posthumously. And Lubbock, we, we try to go through a process that normally goes, you take the person to court and Lubbock said, well, he's dead as far as we're concerned, you know, he's innocent, okay, the DNA doesn't match. Well, we weren't satisfied with that. So we, uh, another attorney by the name of Jeff Blackburn, very brilliant attorney, uh, said, well, we're gonna do a court of inquiry. What's that? He said, well, it says if you're seeking redress, uh, you can prove that you didn't do something, you can go to any court in the state of Texas because we have open courts. Well, come in, ironically, the 299th District Court in Travis County, Austin, Texas, the state capital. And Judge Charlie Baird said, I'll hear that case. We did a court of inquiry. Um, Jerry Wayne Johnson was brought forth. Uh, he was bench warranted there because he's still in prison to this day. He was bench warranted there. And I remember he had on prison clothes and my mother said, mm -mm, take him back, put some street clothing on him. And they were like, why? And she said, to give him some dignity. And he was brought out, he admitted to the rape, gave details, um, and then he was politely, you know, escorted back. And before he left, uh, my mother told the bailiff, she said, tell Mr. Johnson, I said, thank you. And we had the hearing. Tim was cleared uh, by the judicial branch, but we still wanted the legislative branch. I had worked at the legislature years early at Tim's insistence, made a lot of friends. And uh, we were able to get a uh, House resolution and then a Senate resolution marking the fact that an innocent person had actually died in the state pen in, in Texas prisons, and it was the first time in Texas history. Uh, that is done, the legislative branch. We were waiting on the executive branch. Uh, so Rick Perry uh, was then governor. And uh, my mother's only purpose was to clear his name. Well, by that time in Dallas County and Harris County, there were so many of these exonerations happening. And there was a move to change the compensation for the state of Texas. Because how do you compensate a deceased person who had died in prison? And we had uh, were able to meet with Governor Perry, and there was a piece of legislation to increase the compensation for the wrongfully convicted. <clears throat> Prior to that, it was $50,000 a year, maximum 10 years that a person would receive who was wrongfully convicted. And my mother met with Governor Perry. We all met with him. And... He said, she said, Governor, I need this bill for all of these gentlemen, because she had met quite a few men who had been released from prison. And he hugged her and he said, Miss Ruby, I'll sign it. 
anything that comes to my desk with Tim's name on it, I'll sign it. And wow. that came about the Tim Cole Compensation Act. And what it does, it is the most generous in the country. It affords the wrongfully convicted person $80,000 a year times the number of years that they were incarcerated, plus a lifetime annuity and up to 120 college credit hours that the state of Texas will pay for anywhere in this country. If you're in, we have a person who was exonerated and was in Mississippi and called me and said, Mrs. Session, will they pay for me? You know, it's a state school. And I said, you know what, let me make a call. And I called the comptroller's office and they said, just tell them to send us the bill. So for instance, we have one gentleman uh, who was wrongfully convicted and exonerated. He spent 30 years in prison. His name is Cornelius Dupree. <clears throat> well, when he was cleared, he chose to take the compensation because you still have the option to sue the state. But if you take the Tim Cole compensation, it afforded him uh, $2.4 million as a lump sum. One year after your anniversary date of being released, of receiving your compensation, begins your lifetime annuity. And it's, a compensa it's an annuity based off of your age, your life expectancy, the number of years that you spent in prison. Well, this gentleman was well into his 50s. And so the, the monthly annuity is around $16,000 per month. Not only did it do that, but there were several people who were wrongfully convicted prior to Tim, the Tim Cole Act, who had received their lump sum. Well, they didn't get a new lump sum, but what they did get and do get until they die, the calculation was created that they should receive the lifetime annuity as well. So there are people receiving, uh, there's quite a bit, uh, there's a huge list of people who are benefiting from the Tim Cole Compensation Act. We've been doing a lot of shows on this and the, when somebody's exonerated, they don't have the same benefits as somebody who is paroled. And the fact that Texas, you know, has changed the system and is starting to get better benefits with college. And I saw some housing uh, numbers as well and other things and increasing the compensation to 80,000 a year is remarkable. And, you know, it's, it's hopefully will keep getting better and better. So um, it, it, it's, it's just, it's fabulous. And, and I just had a comment how, what a wonderfully strong human being your mother uh, was. I mean, you know, her strength and um, her courage through all this, it just kind of blows my mind. Um, I'll tell you when, Michelle came to our house, my house, actually, in 2008, after, you know, DNA testing was done, and we wanted to meet her. And um, a young lady uh, named Sarah Simpson, now Sarah Heggie, she found Michelle. She worked with the uh, Innocence Clinic at Texas Tech Law School, and she found Sarah. And, I mean, found uh, Michelle, and we talked on the phone, uh, and she told us the story of how the phone, she had come home and there was a voicemail uh, on her phone and it said, uh, this is Bob uh, White. I'm with the Lubbock uh, County DA's office. You need to give me a call back as soon as possible. And she said, she said, Miss Session, I was so terrified. 
And I was like, Tim's out. Is he looking for me? What's going on? And so she calls back and my wife answers the phone. And he said, well, I was calling to let you know that Tim Cole had passed away back in 1999. And she was like, okay, why are you telling me that? And she, she said, he said, well, not only that, uh, you do know there was another uh, suspect, right? And she said, I told them, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys never told me about anybody else. I said, Michelle, that was beginning to shift the blame to you. You picked out the wrong person. Um, so she met my mom and our family. And in the video, she's standing on the porch and she started crying. Mother told her, uh, Michelle, stop crying. And she said, Miss Session, please forgive me. She said, I have nothing to forgive you for. You were a victim just as Timothy was. And in there, you'll see my mom wearing some heart shaped earrings. Uh, well, Michelle admired those earrings. And we ate dinner here in, in, in my dining room. And when it came time to leave, my mother told Michelle, Let me see your hand. She held out her hand, and my mother put her earrings in Michelle's hand, and she said, oh, Miss Session, I can't take these. She said, no, no. You give people their flowers while they're alive. And she still wears those earrings to this day. So she and I, we talk probably three, four times a year, just about random stuff. <laughs> just uh, how are you doing, how things going? Um, and Michelle's husband has since passed. I've been to Michelle's home, visited her. Uh, you know, let me just jump in here, Corey. I mean, you know, wrongful ID. Mm -hmm. I know you're working the Innocence Project and we haven't really talked about it. And, you know, this is such a, a nice story. <clears throat> I say nice story, you know, it's the, all of the things that happened posthumously were, you know, you, this is rare. Right. You did. Yeah. You know, it's just rare. And, and, and I think, you know, the context I'm saying this, but this woman who's now your friend, Michelle. Pointed at your brother and said, it's him. Twice, at least twice. And and. Um, you know, what do you make, you know. What are we what are you trying to do in Texas to make sure that that this doesn't happen to somebody else? Because you and I both know that that wrongful IDs make up a huge percentage of the wrongful convictions. Correct. And so what is being done to to um, you know lessen these problems? Correct. Uh, we never uh, blame Michelle. We just knew she was mistaken. And that's a traumatic uh, event for her to go through. But in 2011, uh, the eyewitness identification for the state of Texas was changed. Uh, we lobbied the legislature to get sequential lineups and require all police agencies to have either a sequential lineup or blind or double blind procedures going on to do uh, eyewitness identification, uh, which is the leading cause. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people who have been wrongfully convicted based off of that's him or that's her. Uh, <clears throat> so that changed and uh, it, it's a simple thing uh, to do. Doesn't cost any money. You just do it a different way. 
uh, a lineup. The person doing the lineup should not have any knowledge of the case. And it's simply, you got a six pack? Well, it's six photos that you show an individual and you say, well, the person who uh, committed this offense may or may not be in the photos I'm about to show you. And you shut up and you just show them one fold and you don't say anything. Undue influence can be an officer or detective. If you don't pick the one that they say it is by going, are you sure? You can't do that because there's a pressure on that. Well, it must be in here because he wouldn't have done. So those type things you can't do anymore uh, in the state of Texas. Uh, we've been also lobbied to change how a person can file a writ uh, based off of new evidence. Uh, Texas was the first state uh, to allow a junk science bill that basically says, based off of new evidence, arson is one of the best ones. Well, back in, you know, 20 years ago, you know, cracking on a window meant, yep, that was uh, accelerant use. Uh, and so that's excessive heat that makes the window crack. Well, years later, you know, the fire marshals realized you know, uh, heat on the inside and a fire hose shooting water on the glass cause cracking in the windshield. So you go back and you review all these cases where they say there was uh, a, a, a petroleum uh, in the floor. Well, years, you look at the floor and wood floors, a lot of those floors were made with petroleum based in it. So a lot of things change and we've exonerated uh, some people based off of uh, junk science. Uh, yeah, it's we, we've had some podcasts talking about the arson and the bite marks and all that kind of crazy stuff. But give me a give me a brief overview of what you're of the good work you're doing as vice president of Texas uh, Innocence Project. Uh, I, I fell into that uh, role um, and as vice president of Innocence Project Texas, Mike, Mike portion of this is I don't work on the cases or anything like that. Um, mine is more on the legislative side, um, trying to get members of the legislature, a lot of them who were still there, are there now, were there when I worked at the legislature to see things, how we get uh, uh, bills and legislation that we want, changing um, how it is to give better access to the courts uh, for people filing writ claims, um, increasing, uh, you know, access uh, from uh, jailhouse uh, snitch. We had a jailhouse snitch bill that was passed that says, you know, basically, you know, the police or the prosecutor uses a jailhouse informant that uh, that if there's any type plea deals or anything that made with them, it must be disclosed at time of trial. Uh, and if that person, there's so many jailhouse informants that are professional jailhouse. Be surprised how many times prosecutors use the same person in multiple cases uh, as a snitch. Uh, well, that's unreliable. You know, nobody is, you know, uh, he's not the Pope, nobody's going through, or she's not a confessional giving this type uh, of information. Uh, but it is ongoing. Um, there are so many. Uh, that are that are still in prison, uh, who are the incarcerated innocent, that DNA will not help, that uh, it's a he said, she said, guns, you know, murders, that, you know, one of the worst ones is uh, child sex assaults. 
uh, the person is, is, is uh, sent to prison. And then the person who was the victim comes back years later and says, it, it never happened. It never happened. Prosecutors are, are just rarely willing to look at cases like that. We had success with one and uh, with uh, four women in San Antonio that we were able to get exonerated. They're known as the San Antonio Four, four women who were accused of molesting one of the women's uh, nieces. And uh, we were able to blow that case just completely out of the water. It was just based all off of just pure junk science. And that was historic uh, to get four women out on yeah. the day, uh, based off of a sexual assault claim. Well, listen, you're doing some great work. My, my last question to you is, what, what, do you, what do you think Tim would say about uh, all this good work you're doing these days and with the Innocence Project and all of this good stuff that happened posthumously? What, what, do you, what, would, what would he say? I, I think he, uh, Tim was a uh, rather shy, uh, quiet person. And I remember growing up, uh, there were a lot of children on our street where we were uh, older than Tim, younger, and we were all standing outside uh, around. At, and the was, how do you get to heaven? And people were saying all kinds of things. Oh, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do this. But Tim was very simple. He saw things uh, simple. And uh, they looked at him. Tim's nickname was Ears. Uh, and they looked at him and said, here's what you think. And he was sitting on the curb and he said three things. He said, just do right. And it was a pause and people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, ears, leave the ears. Yeah, just make it simple. Um, and that's what I would like for prosecutors, jurists, judges, just do right. Um, you can't do anything for Tim, but on historical marker, uh, and just so you know, my sister doing all that time at Texas Tech uh, Law School, she was, that's her brother. She was the only black female at Texas Tech Law School, and everybody knew that was her brother. And so there was a lot of pressure, and she wrote Tim and said, you know, she was thinking about transferring back to SMU and go to law school there. And he was in prison and he wrote from prison. And the, the words are, they mean more now because what he said to her was, do not leave Tex Law School. While in prison, he said, I still believe in the justice system, even though it does not believe in me. So we still have the best uh, criminal justice system on this planet in these United States. However, it is not perfect, but uh, the Supreme Court has those words etched and emblazoned on it, equal justice on the law. I'd like to add two ahead of it that says in pursuit of equal justice under law. I think I think with your tenacity and your skills, you might get that done. Um, I love Just Do Right. I want to end on that note, Corey Session. Say, thank you so much for being with, here, with us on Open Mic. Keep up the good work. We're going to have links to... Uh, the Texas Innocence Project um, in our show notes so people can get a hold of you, can donate money, can keep up with the good work you guys are doing. And uh, thank you for sharing your story with me and our listeners and viewers today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
Okay, another tough one. If you know anybody who needs to see that episode, forward it to them, like, comment. Please give us your comments. We read them. We try to you know, provide the best content for you. Subscribe to our channel so we know that you're watching and listening. And uh, just thanks for, thanks for being here with us today. And we really appreciate you watching and listening to Open Mic. Take care.